everyone. Welcome to Selected Essays, a podcast series from The Point magazine about essays you should read but probably haven't. Each episode, we'll be talking with writers about an essay that's influenced one of their own. My name is Jess Swoboda, and I'm here with my co-host, Zach Fine. Hey, thanks for joining us. This week, we have Ryan Ruby on the show. Ryan is a critic, novelist, poet, and translator from Los Angeles. His work has appeared in N Plus One, The New York Review of Books, The Baffler, and The Point. We spoke with Ryan about Susan Sontag's essay, Approaching Artaud, which was published in The New Yorker in 1973 and centers on the French avant-garde playwright, poet, and essayist Antonin Artaud. We also talked with Ryan about his essay, Dig It Up Again, which was written for the 100th anniversary of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland and was published last year by Poetry Magazine. We hope you'll enjoy this episode and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, comments, or anything else, send an email to selectedessays at thepointmag.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, Ryan, thanks for joining us. Pleasure is mine. Hello. Can you tell us why you chose this essay by Sontag about Artaud? The, the, the simple answer is, is that uh, it's my favorite of Sontag's essays. And I think it's generally uh, underknown. Um, it's sort of a second or maybe even third tier essay in terms of its popularity. But I think it's um, uh, one of the most important of her works, although it is less well known. And its position in her career um, helps us to sort of understand and summarize the early part of uh, Sontag's career and the transition to the to the middle period. And it brings up, um, on a in a personal sense, the reason the reason I like it so much, of course, is that uh, the figure of Artaud is important to me, and it brings up a number of. Um, uh, important challenges and, and issues for understanding uh, a number of, of things that I work on, namely um, the history of modernism, as well as the relationship between um, avant-garde politics and uh, avant-garde uh, aesthetics, of whom Artaud represents a sort of interesting case and cautionary tale, uh, which Sontag really gets to the bottom of, or rather really gets to the bottom of the issues involved uh, in this particular essay. So the essay was published in the early 1970s in the New Yorker originally. Can you tell us a little bit about what was happening in Sontag's life when she wrote this and anything that you're aware of about its publication history? Yeah, so it's it's kind of an unusual essay in a number of regards. Um, it's published in May 1973, um, first in The New Yorker. As you note, it's the first time Sontag writes for The New Yorker, which is not her usual venue, uh, which is the New York Review of Books and sometimes the Partisan Review, uh, famously. But it's, yeah, it's the first of, of only about a dozen essays that she'll write for The New Yorker over the course of her career. Um, it later becomes the introduction for a selected work, uh, sort of selected writings of Artaud, which Sontag uh, edits. And then it gets collected in 1980 in Under the Sign of Saturn, um, whereupon she's at a very, very different point in 
her career uh, and her trajectory. Um, the immediate sort of context um, uh, for for the essay. So, if you're looking at Sontag in 1972, early 1973, um, she's. I think the the most important thing to note here, uh, for what why I assume we'll discuss later, is um, she goes to China in August 1972, and it's the third of these trips that she takes. Um, she goes to, to northern Vietnam. Uh, very famously recorded in her essay trip to Hanoi, uh, which is extremely controversial, uh, as well as she goes to Cuba and uh, finally to to Sweden, um, where she films her her two film or two of her three films, Do It for Cannibals and Brother Carl. Uh, um, but the reason her visit to to China is important is, of course, is. Uh, 1972, we're talking in the period of the Cultural Revolution and cu Cultural Revolution and what that means uh, to Sontag gets discussed uh, in this particular essay. Uh, and she, she publishes um, a, a short piece called Project for a Trip to China. And she has an uncompleted project called Notes Toward a Definition of Cultural Revolution, um, which she's also writing as she's uh, uh, working on this Artaud piece. And Artaud is someone who's been with her, I guess we could discuss that later, from the very beginning of her career as, a, as, as an essayist. Um, and yeah, so the, that's, that, that's the sort of political background. Uh, the, other, the other important things that are going on is that it's, we're, we're looking, and, and I think this will be important when we discuss Eliot, we're looking at the end of the Bretton Woods system uh, that sort of begins with the Nixon shock in 1971 and ends in March 1973. And by the end of the year, um, when the Yom Kippur War happens, we're looking at uh, the oil crisis and therefore the age of uh, stagflation. Uh, and that's the sort of political background along with the sort of last gasp of the U.S. counterculture, uh, of whom Arto is a sort of important forerunner. Um, the vogue for Maoism among French intellectuals uh, and artists like Godard uh, is happening around that same time. So Artaud is born in, in 1896 and dies in 1948. Uh, and the, the major sort of points of his career are touched on from his early, uh, his early life as a sort of failed poet. Uh, he sends and then begins a correspondence with uh, Jacques Riviere at the Nouvelle Revue Française in 1923. Um, he then goes on to have a career, uh, a brief career as, uh, as an actor, and he acts as a film actor, and he acts in uh, Carl uh, Dreyer's um, Passion of Joan of Arc and Gans's Napoleon. Uh, he gives up film uh, for the stage, and he becomes um, a uh, theoretician, and this is what he's best known for. He's best known as a theoretician of, uh, of theater, and in his book, Theater and Its Double, he advances, as, as you said, Zach, uh, a specific idea of what the sort of what theater, both aesthetically and politically, is supposed to do, which he calls the theater of cruelty. Um, in the, I believe in the, the late twenties, early thirties, he directs a number of, 
uh, plays himself all at this small theater called the Théâtre uh, Jarry in in Paris, uh, which are uniformly in terms of their um, uh, the number of people who attended them uniformly failures. Uh, he goes in search of uh, he goes to uh, he, he's interested in Balinese theater uh, and Cambodian theater. Um, and um, non-Western theater, more generally non-Western art and, and culture, more generally, uh, as, as well as sort of strange esoteric traditions in, in Western history and intellectual life. Uh, and he, go, he goes to Mexico in the, in the 30s to um, go see these peyote cult rituals um, as a sort of an, an attempt to get sort of more ideas, inspirations for his theatrical work. Uh, during the 40s, uh, during the war, he is, um, uh, how should we say, he's um, not incarcerated in a prison. That is the tendentious way of, excuse me, not incarcerated in a, in a hospital. He's hospitalized um, for probable schizophrenia, and he spends three years in Rodet in an insane asylum uh, where he's subject to electroshock therapy. He gets released in 1946 and starts giving, um, uh, returns to writing, gives a very famous radio broadcast, which is immediately censored um, by the French government called to have done with the judgment of God. And he dies of cancer in 1948. So that's the brief proceed of of Artaud's life. Um, Sontag is... Uh, interested in something a little, she's interested in all those things, but what she's most interested in is how Artaud becomes a sort of uh, person who has lives through uh, modernism uh, and has the sort of lived experience of a series of uh, intellectual presumptions that, uh, that are sort of broader uh, cultural uh, phenomena. So, um, most importantly, right? So, what Sontag's really interested in, what the essay opens with, and what she wants to talk about is what happens when you take seriously, or to use Sontag's phrase, when you take with moral seriousness the um, erasure of the difference between art and life. That is a sort of classic sort of modernist desiderata. And for Sontag, uh, Artaud is the person who uh, attempts to live through that experience in the most um, sort of palpable way. So Ryan, now seems like a good time to turn to the opening passage of Sontag's essay. Can I ask you to read that out for us? Approaching Artaud. The movement to disestablish the quote-unquote author has been at work for over a hundred years. From the start, the impetus was, as it still is, apocalyptic, vivid with complaint and jubilation at the convulsive decay of old social orders, borne up by that worldwide sense of living through a revolutionary moment, which continues to animate most moral and intellectual excellence. The attack on the quote-unquote author persists in full vigor Though the revolution either has not taken place or, wherever it did, has quickly stifled literary modernism, gradually becoming, 
in those countries not recast by a revolution, the dominant tradition of high literary culture instead of its subversion. Modernism continues to evolve codes for preserving the new moral energies while temporizing with them. That the historical imperative which appears to discredit the very practice of literature has lasted so long, a span covering numerous literary generations, does not mean that it was incorrectly understood, nor does it mean that the malaise of the quote-unquote author has now become outmoded or inappropriate, as is sometimes suggested. People tend to become cynical about even the most appealing crisis if it seems to be dragging on, failing to come to term. But the longevity of modernism does show what happens when the prophesied revolution of drastic social and psychological anxiety is postponed, what unsuspected capacities for ingenuity and agony, and the domestication of agony, may flourish in the interim. When I first read this, I was kind of amazed that that was the opening paragraph for a New Yorker story. It seemed, you know, it presumes a lot of um, previous knowledge and reading, and it's pretty knotted in some ways. Why do you think Sontag starts there? And for this audience in particular, thinking about the venue? Yeah, I I was thinking about this as well, because you're exactly right to point that out. This um, I think the, the, the reason she does it is because she can get away with it. And that's what's quite um, miraculous about the, the entire essay. Um, so in that first paragraph, you hear this, like this very, uh, this, this tone that we associate with, with Sontag, right? The, um, the sort of, uh, pronouncements, uh, the series of, of very general pronouncements, the, um, the sort of authoritative tone that comes through each sentence, that lovely sort of, um, uh, parenthetical uh, about about cynicism, and in fact, she doesn't even get to her subject for another two to three pages, right? So she's laying a lot of groundwork before we even get to Artaud at all. Uh, he gets, um, she goes through, and she goes on to discuss the relationship um, between satire and society. Uh, and says that, of course, uh, satire is um, critique of social critique by people who consider themselves members of the society, and then goes on to discuss these sort of more uh, extreme cases in which uh, there is a, a critique of society that amounts to rupture, uh, a total but failed rupture uh, from society, both in life and in, in art. Uh, of which um, Artaud then becomes an exemplar. But as to, as to your question about the, the particular audience, I can only imagine that the New Yorker audience uh, was either familiar with Sontag's shtick and therefore liked it. Um, she, you know, it's 1973. Uh, she's been a celebrity, um, a sort of a nationwide, if not global-wide celebrity for the better part of 10 years at that point. Or the New Yorker audience was completely baffled um, by the kind of thing that they were being presented in this. And it's unrelenting. It does continue on in this vein in more for more or less 60 pages. So Sontag writes in this essay, quote, the link between suffering and writing is one of Artaud's leading themes. One earns the right to speak through having suffered, but the necessity of using language is itself the central occasion for suffering. 
So in what ways does suffering appear in Artaud's writing? Artaud is very, as the, as the essay will conclude in saying, Artaud is very difficult to read in more than bits and pieces. And um, he is, uh, according to Sontag, he is a thoroughgoing materialist. So he believes that all of his thoughts are, in fact, corporeal events. And all of his thoughts are things from which uh, he suffers uh, greatly, right? So his, his mind is his body. Uh, he is a possessed of a particularly virulent pes- pessimism. Um, and he experiences that pessimism not as like, for example, uh, Chiorin would, uh, as a kind of sort of delight, but rather as a genuine sort of calvary or passion. That Sontag uses these these words. He's, he's, he's a sort of secular Christ figure uh, in, in this particular way. Um, and he records, uh, for example, in, in, in an early work, or let's say a work from the 20s, like the nerve meter, he, he sort of drastically records the sort of, um, the sort of painful rot that his body has become by virtue of carrying this series of increasingly um, uh, brutal and cruel uh, thoughts that he has that he has in his mind, um, and so that's that's what makes and then sort of for for Sontag that's Artaud's credential. It's not that he has a it's not that he has a, a beautiful prose style. It's not that he like uh, Joyce gets discussed later in the piece uh, is creating sort of an intelligible multi language. It is that he is lived living at a dr- degree of extremity and extremis. Uh, that few people, few people do, and it is her aim to sort of track the motions and movements of that kind of thinking uh, through all of its paradoxes and sort of dialectical reversals as uh, Artaud goes on to, um, uh, you know, create ultimately what's going to be a body of work about uh, the theater. Does the fact that Artaud is unassemblable, according to Sontag, does that have anything to do with as she describes both his work and his life as a failure. She says that Arto failed. And I was trying to figure out exactly what she was getting at that, getting at with that line, um, if that's related at all to what you're you're talking about. Yeah, I think there's a sense in which his work is a, is a necessary failure. Um, which is to say that the ambitions created for the work um as as a total work of art. Um, I think she says in an early passage, the idea is that, uh, you know, since Mallarmé, we have the book, right? The book that contains all books compared to which all forms of art uh, or all forms of writing are are themselves fragmentary and incomplete. Uh, And in the sense that in each of various phases of Artaud's career, each of them is um, fails towards this standard of the attempt to create uh, a total work of art and remains so. It gets indigestible work. We asked you to choose a, a second passage from the essay. Can we turn there now and have you read it for us? This is, um, this is the passage, you know, as they say online, I think about this all the time. And this is the passage that I think about all the time because um, I think it, it lays out uh, a series of positions uh, and represents a sort of great conceptual challenge that, you know, I don't think that I'm finished thinking through. But uh, when one reads something 
like this. And I hope, I hope people feel the same way. But when one reads something like this, uh, one is sort of feels, I believe, confronted uh, by, uh, yeah, an immense intellectual and conceptual challenge uh, that seems to face us all. So I will, I will read it and you may judge for yourselves. <laughs> one result of the aspiration to a total art which follows from denying the gap between art and life has been to encourage the notion of art as an instrument of revolution. The other result has been the identification of both art and life with disinterested, pure playfulness. For every Vertov or Breton, there is a Cage or a Duchamp or a Rauschenberg. Although Artaud is close to Vertov and Breton in that he considers his activities to be part of a larger revolution, as a self-proclaimed revolutionary in the arts, he actually stands between two camps, not interested in satisfying either the political or the ludic impulse. Dismayed when Breton attempted to link the Surrealist program with Marxism, Artaud broke with the Surrealists for what he considered to be their betrayal into the hands of politics of an essentially, quote-unquote, spiritual revolution. He was anti-bourgeois almost by reflex, like nearly all artists in the modernist tradition, but the prospect of transferring power from the bourgeoisie to the proletariat never tempted him. From his avowedly absolute viewpoint, a change in social structure would not change anything. The revolution to which Artaud subscribes has nothing to do with politics, but is conceived explicitly as an effort to redirect culture. Not only does Artaud share the widespread and mistaken belief in the possibility of a cultural revolution unconnected with political change, but he implies that the only genuine cultural revolution is one having nothing to do with politics. Artaud's call to cultural revolution suggests a program of heroic regression similar to that formulated by every great anti-political moralist of our time. The banner of cultural revolution is hardly a monopoly of the Marxist or Maoist left. On the contrary, it appeals particularly to apolitical thinkers and artists like Nietzsche, Spengler, Pirandello, Marinetti, D.H. Lawrence, Pound, who more commonly become right-wing enthusiasts. On the political left, there are few advocates of cultural revolution. Tatlin, Gramsci, and Godard are the ones who come to mind. A radicalism that is purely cultural is either illusory or finally conservative in its implications. Artaud's plans for subverting and revitalizing culture, his longing for a new type of human personality, illustrate the limits of all thinking about revolution which is anti-political. Cultural revolution that refuses to be political has nowhere to go but toward a theology of culture, an esoteriology. So I'm curious about how art is being discussed, not just in this passage, but in the essay as a whole. So earlier in the essay, in the first half, Sontag describes Artaud as seeing art, quote, as an action and therefore a passion of the mind and writes that he has an inveterate taste for spiritual and physical effort for art as order. And then in this passage you just read, she mentions total art, which follows from denying the gap between art and life to encourage the notion of art as an instrument of revolution. 
And so can you talk about what art is for Artaud and how, if at all, that conception is different from what total art is being defined as here? Yeah, so the, I think there's a sort of a, a chain of articulations that we should that we should talk about, right? The first is uh, between thought and as a sort of ideal phenomenon and 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 mind, or rather brain, body. Artaud collapses those two things, right? So for him, thoughts are, and this is sort of a congenial notion for us. Thoughts are actions of the brain and mind. Um, all. Right, so the ne- so that's that's one collapse, right? So he's a proper materialist in that sense. Then uh, he comes across the the sort of next collapse, which is uh, in the production of uh, art, um, and especially an art which is antagonistic to sort of uh, currently existing social forms. There's a becomes a collapse between art and life. So it's not only enough to produce. Uh, art objects, but one is creating uh, an an experience um, which other people will then uh, experience uh, as material beings, as sort of actions that are that are done to him or th- them, right? And this brings this is why Artois becomes a a person who works in the theater because theater is the media is the is the artistic form which sort of gobbles up uh, and and in this sense he has a sort of Wagnerian conception of theater, right? That gobbles up all the other forms and quote unquote genres of art expression. Uh, Artaud is against genre as a sort of socially illegitimate form of distinction between kinds of arts, but he wants to put them all together and enact them, uh, the sort of uh, thoughts of the individual mind on a grand, grander scale to the audience at a theater, right? And once you get to that point, what you're looking at the audience of a theater is a sort of proto-society. And so Artaud then conceives of the theater as, in turn, a way of collapsing um, not just the individual's uh, thoughts and, and art productions and life, uh, but also that of the individual and the society to which that person uh, takes part in and belongs. Sontag in the essay, um, is partially showing her hands here, but I'm curious how you would describe when she pushes back on Artaud's cultural revolution as being anti-political. What is she uh, implicitly advocating for? What is her vision of what a, a political art would look like that would be successful? Well, this is the great question, right? So this is precisely, you've gone exactly to the, to the crux of the point. So as you rightly noted, Sontag is being critical of Artaud here. Um, and this is another way of describing Artaud's, to your previous question, another way in which Artaud is a failure. So Artaud has a, I, I forget if maybe I left this out, but it has a very sort of famous falling out uh, with the Surrealist, with Breton, uh, over the sort of Surrealists becoming or sort of joining themselves to the, uh, to the Communist Party, the French Communist Party. Um, and Artaud wants to go his own way, as it were. And thinks that the mere restructuring of um, sort of what we think of classically as revolution, the restructuring of the social, political, and economic order, um, is insufficient because ultimately this will leave us with the same sort of metaphysical problems that we that we have. Uh, and an- another group, 
let's say, and she associates this with Cocteau, sort of pulls into a, a sort of disinterested ludic, is the word she uses, art for art's sake, in which there is no social purpose whatsoever. Uh, and Artos sort of stands between these two things. And ultimately what his failure is in this regard is that he fails, he would like to achieve a cultural revolution solely through culture. Uh, and the problem there is that that cannot be done because culture is not simply the production of, uh, in this case, plays or art objects. It is the ordering of a society in which those uh, works of art become uh, intelligible and experienceable. And that, you know, and of course, uh, that particular society is going to be extremely complex, full of different sort of power centers, interests, the most prominent of which is going to be what kind of economy does it have? Uh, and as long as those things are untouched, um, they uh, result in the ultimate impotence and failure of a good faith effort to change the culture itself. So the culture cannot be changed by culture alone. We asked you to pair one of your own essays with Artos, and you selected Dig It Up Again which is about T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland on its 100-year anniversary. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your essay and how Sontag's essay on Artaud influenced it? Sure, yeah. So I was, I was looking through my work, and, and Sontag pops up in a, in a lot of places by name. Um, so I, I wrote a piece on, um, on, on Wittgenstein, and she pops up, uh, her discussion, her essay on, on aesthetics of silence pops up. I wrote a piece on Pedro Weiss for, for, for the point. And of course she pops up there, uh, because she had written about Pedro Weiss, who, whom incidentally that, that essay is called Marat Saad Artaud. Uh, and so Pedro Weiss, she sees Pedro Weiss as sort of synthesis of Brecht and, and Artaud. Um, and then I wrote about her again, of course, with my, in my essay on, on, on Zabald. Um, who she was very uh, influential and important in introducing to uh, English-speaking audiences. But uh, when I was thinking about which essay to, to pair uh, approaching Artaud with, it seemed to me that, that the one uh, that I should pick was, you know, it's sort of like uh, influence is best detected when uh, not mentioned directly, you know, which, which is to say that the, the sort of animating concerns that I think that are happening in the Arto essays are the same animating concerns or the essays in dialogue with them uh, in a way that is, is much more strongly and so strong in fact that uh, Sontag's name is a sort of precursor could not be mentioned in it. Uh, whereas it was sort of more superficial in, in all the, in all the other cases. Um, and so uh, what the, what the wasteland essay does, uh, it does, uh, it tries to do five different things. Uh, one for each section of the wasteland, the the overlap uh, I think exists mostly in its um, in its last section, which is sort of uh, addresses some of the questions that uh, Sontag is raising about the about about the nature of modernism and uh, from a period of further removed. There's another part of the Artaud essay which is sort of in dialogue with it, and that's um, Artaud's interest or Sontag's reading of Artaud as a sort of Gnostic figure. Uh, and Gnosticism, 
um, is a very strange uh, heretical sect uh, that first appears in the sort of early centuries of the Common Era. And it's a sort of fundamentally dualistic religion. Um, matter is evil. Um, the ways around it are extreme asceticism or libertinism. And um, the sort of world is a sort of fallen world. And the only way to get out of it is a sort of purification of the soul, as it were. And Sontag reads uh, Arto as this kind of figure. Um, but Gnosticism itself, right, uh, is a recurring tendency throughout the history of, of Europe. And so in a way, the sort of idea of my, my sort of theory of what a modernism is derives from Sontag's idea of what a, what a Gnosticism is. When we were corresponding before this episode, you said that part of the reason why you wanted to talk about the Artaud essay was because it was a, a quote, masterclass and a single author essay treatment. And Jess and I were both reading your Eliot essay and really admired it a great deal and felt like it would be a, a thing that you could teach to students or share with people who might not know a lot about Eliot, that it was a wonderful single author treatment. And so we're, we're kind of curious about what you think the necessary ingredients are of a great single author essay as you conceive of it and how one might write one. Yes. Yeah, so, so as I said at the, um, at the outset, that, that this one turns the sort of traditional idea about what that means on its head. And what's, what's kind of amazing about it is, is it's the kind of thing that if you wanted to take, if you wanted to know about Artaud, you would, you would be satisfied. You would have the entire breadth of his life and work delivered to you. Um, and you would begin to see it. it and she, she quotes from Artaud very, um, you know, not at length, but very selectively and very sparingly. And it does so in a way that actually takes this very chaotic, very hard to assimilate, very hard to wrap your head around oeuvre when considered as a sort of merely literary oeuvre, um, and really uh, brings it all together into a kind of coherence that shows that the life itself has a kind of coherence. And that coherence is um, both in motion, right? She very closely tracks the sort of paradoxes that are opened up by uh, Artaud's ideas and how those paradoxes sort of, uh, sort of dialectically unfold, flip back on their heads, um, engage further, enact further paradoxes. And it has a sort of conceptual rigor that, that, takes this author which is so difficult who is so difficult to write about and gives that author a kind of coherence that that, that it would be hard to detect from the work themselves without the kind of um, broader philosophical metaphysical cultural historical contextualizations that Sontag brings to it and one gets the impression um, from finishing the entirety of the essay of a, of an immense comprehensiveness, uh, immense totality and enclosure. And you get to see how you could take this author, um, and then use them or apply them and the ideas involved in 
either in one's own work or in one's own reading. And that it's, I, I, I should have probably, now I think about it, I should have just read you some Arto. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that the experience, and I recommend readers just sit down, um, pick, pick anything, pick the nerve meter, pick to have done with the judgment of God. And I think the impression you would take away from that if you were encountering and that the selected works that, that she selects is around 700 pages. If you were to come and have 700 pages of this, you would think that, well, this is the, the writings of a raving lunatic. But Sontag makes it whole, coherent, gives us the reasons we should take it seriously, and provides it as back to us as, as a sort of uh, intellectual, cultural, spiritual challenge that Arto really was and, and represented. Uh, and that's hard to see or detect from the writings themselves. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us. Um, it's been really great to talk to you about this essay. Thanks, Jess. Thank, thank you, Zach. I, I had fun too. Thank you for having me on. Thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of Selected Essays. We'd like to thank Joe Coleman for editing the podcast and Meg Duffy of Hand Habits for contributing the original music. We hope you'll tune in to our next episode, where we'll be talking with Lauren Euler about Elif Bautman's Who Killed Tolstoy. As always, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you have questions, comments, or anything else, send an email to selectedessays at thepointmag.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, listeners.